the things that I want to mention very quickly, we had our commissioning team here just a minute ago. And you know, they're going into uh, an unknown territory of sharing the gospel. And, uh, you know, sometimes we find ourselves in these type of situations where we really lack confidence what, what's going to happen when we go, and kind of go into a new area of ministry. It's important to realize that the purpose of the mission trip is not just to help people's needs and not just to share the gospel, but there is a Baptist Bible Institute in Honduras that's training young pastors. And when we go into a, a new village, that what we're doing is we're either helping support this new pastor. He's just begun a work, and so we're bringing people together for them to to be exposed to the gospel, but also to know about the church and how they can grow. But oftentimes we go into a village, and that is the catalyst to create a nucleus of new believers where this pastor can now come to this village and begin a church. And we've seen that time and time again. So in a sense, we're also helping establish new churches all throughout Honduras, and it's exciting to see that. We often find ourselves, though, on a very personal level, where we are in a, trying to make a decision, a circumstance of life, and we lack confidence. We're unsure of what God is doing. We're unsure of our next step. We seem paralyzed by what we ought to do. It can be true of a church. You know, we're embarking on a God-sized task of adding to our facility. And we've had to come to terms and come to a point, are we confident that this is God's will? Do we, are we confident that this is what he's leading us to do? And can you be confident of this decision as well? And so today's message is going to help us all understand how can we work through a process of knowing that when it's all said and done, I'm confident that I'm going in the direction that I ought to go. I'm, I'm confident of who I am, who God is, and his purpose for my life, for church, where you work, or whatever it might be. So I want you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. For those who were not here last Sunday, this is part 2 of a message I began last Sunday. We looked at one point, today we'll look at the second point, and it ties together. You'll see how it all comes together and how it wraps up at the end of the message. 1 John chapter 2, I want to read the entire passage uh, from last Sunday because it fits into what we're going to say today, gives context. John is writing and he says this, John, 1 John, excuse me, make sure, 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Now here's our text today. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away 
but the one who does God's will remains forever. Now, how can you live with confidence? Remember the context. John is writing to the church, several churches uh, in Asia Minor and in the Turkey area, Syria, that we know. Uh, in fact, where the earthquake happened recently. It's in that same area. And to these churches, he's saying that there are false teachers that have come, and they're telling you this is the truth. And he's saying the confidence that you need to go in the right direction is based on being confident of God's truth. This is true today. In order for you to be confident of what God wants you to do in the circumstance that you're facing, it's making sure that you're going in the direction of God's truth, knowing and doing God's truth. And so how is it can, that we can have confidence today? Well, first of all, we need assurance with God. just want to review from last Sunday very quickly. Now, he says there's three ways that we have assurance with God. The first one, he says, is that your sins are forgiven. Not, not present tense. Uh, I mean, they are now, but they have been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Notice, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Because of Christ, because of what he's done, that you can be confident that your sins are forgiven. All sins, that sin that you don't think God can forgive, all sins have been forgiven. Secondly, you have assurance because you know Jesus Christ. Verse 13, you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. You have a relationship with God through Christ. And then notice third, that you have won the battle. Verse 13, you have had victory over the evil one. Now all three of these are because of your position in Christ. Because of what Christ has done, what God has done through Christ, then you can be confident of who you are and what you ought to be doing. And that insurance enables you to live with confidence. Now again, it's all based on what God has done, making you right with Him through Jesus Christ. That's a key point. It's because of what God has done through Christ. Now notice the second way in which that you're able to have confidence in your life, and that is allegiance to God. He has just showed you what God has done. Now he's going to show what you must do. If you want to have confidence with God, you've got to make sure you're doing the right thing. Because if you're not doing the right thing, at some point, you're going to realize, I don't have confidence in who I am, uh, the decisions I'm making, or what I'm doing. You're going to start to see the fallout, the results of not following God's will, and it's going to create a lack of confidence in what you should be doing. So they must have absolute allegiance to God. They must be loyal to Him. They must be holy. They must be separated unto the Lord and to His will. Verse 15, notice. Do not love the world. You say, now I've told you what He's done. Now I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. So he begins with this emphatic command do not love the world. The word world is the word cosmos in the Greek text. And it can refer to three different things. It can refer to the created order. It can refer to the planet itself or the universe, the world in that sense. It can refer to the world of human beings, of mankind. But it can also refer to an evil worldly system that is at work and it is controlled by Satan himself. It's a, another world. It's an evil world. It's a world that has its rule and reign here on earth. It's a kingdom 
of evil, and that is Satan's realm. And so here in the context, that's what John is referring to. He's referring to this worldly system. He's not saying that creation is evil. Like, remember, the Gnostics would say creation is evil. But he's saying that you're in this battle. It's between darkness and light. It's a spiritual battle. And, and, and yet, you're caught in the middle of it. Creation is caught in the middle of it. And we're having to choose which way that we're going to go. I just read recently how creation groans for the day of redemption. We all groan that as well. We want Christ to come or we want to go and be with Christ where this is all over. The good news is that it's not going to last forever, this battle that we're in. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, we, in light of the suffering, in light of suffering, therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Here's the key. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now that's the good news, that one day it's going to be over. But until then, John says you must be loyal to God. It, it, it cannot be divided. This verse says that you cannot love God and love the world. That, that the world and God cannot coexist peacefully. That will never happen. You see the bumper sticker, coexist? And it's got all the symbols of the different world religions, as if we're going to coexist by those different world religions. Well, there's only one religion that is right, and that is the Christian faith. The others are not centered in the God that we know of the Bible and the Jesus that we know of the Bible. And there's going to be constant conflict because that is of the world. And, and it's a different kingdom that is operating through those world religions. I, I wish it were true that we could all get along and be happy. But I can show you places in the world today. I have been to places in the world today where those other world religions are operating and there is no peace. And the reason there is no peace it's because they're not enough for them that believe those religions. It's because it's in constant conflict with God, with, with, with what God's plan is for a man. And until a man is made right with God through Jesus Christ, there will be no peace. And so until the second coming of Christ, there is this constant struggle that is taking place. To pledge allegiance to one side is to declare war against the other. Now, why should we not love the world? John answers that question, verse 16. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, here he's kind of giving a summary of what is the world. Okay, don't love the world. Well, what is the world? And he gives you three different categories, three contrasts that we'll see. First is the flesh versus the spirit. He talks about the lust of the flesh. The word lust means to desire, to crave. Uh, it's a passion that a person has. And then he uses the word flesh. That in this context means sinful man. Now the word lust and the word flesh can be used in a positive way, but that's not how John uses it here. The lust of the flesh is an evil thing. He uses it in a negative way in relating to the world and the world system. 
Here are some other translations of the lust of the flesh. The things our physical nature craves. The coveting of the flesh. The gratification of the earthly nature. All that panders to the appetites. Those are good translations, aren't they? What is it that that is drawing you to satisfy these cravings that you have in your life? We all, we all deal with this. We all fight this. The lust of the flesh. That there's something inside of me that wants to have my needs met. And we act like little children. You know, the infants, what are the first words they learn? I, me, mine. And they're very possessive. They want their desires, their needs, their cravings, their passions met. And they don't care at what cost. They don't understand that. But spiritually speaking, we're the same way. We have these passions and desires and cravings. And we act like little boys when we need to be grown men, grown women, and letting the Spirit of God satisfy the desires of our flesh. Because listen, there is nothing the world provides that will satisfy the desire of the flesh other than it being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can satisfy the longing that you have, the desire that you have. Our natural tendency is to default. Why? We have a sinful nature. We, we yield to the temptation, the lust of the flesh. Then secondly, another contrast is seeing what is unseen. That which we can see, and that's what we cannot see. Verse 16, he says, the lust of the eyes. Now, your eyes are not evil, but they are often the means by which we fix our eyes on sinful desires, and that is what's introduced to the mind. What we see is introduced to the mind. Your eyes a window into your soul. Jesus said in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If you're seeing the right thing, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, you're looking on that which is wrong. That means not just a physical eyesight, but spiritual eyesight. Your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, lewdness, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a person. Look, it's a reality we all deal with. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And so our spiritual eyes are supposed to be fixed on what is unseen. Now what is unseen? We just read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What is unseen? It's the Spirit of God. It's the kingdom of God. It's the presence of God. It's the home of God, which is heaven. That's where our eyes need to be focused. Our eyes need to be focused on what it's going to look like with what I'm about to do a month from now, a year from now, five years, ten years. You see, Satan knows how to appeal to us in such a way that we are so desperate in our despondency and in our lack of confidence and in doing what we uh, want to do 
that we make immediate decisions. We rush into decisions. And when we do that, we find ourselves making a decision of unintended consequences. Things that we never thought were going to happen. How many times have I heard a man or a woman sit in my office and say, I never thought it would come to this. I didn't think this was going to happen. Why? They didn't think it through. They, they didn't understand what was going to happen. And with deep regret and deep agony and consequences they cannot control. That's what happens if we're not thoughtful and we see the right thing the right way as God sees it. Our focus is on, on, is on Him. Not on what is temporary, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, but on what is eternal. So much to say there, but I need to move on. Notice the third contrast is pride versus humility. Notice he said that this is he's describing what is the world. Verse 16, the pride of one's lifestyle. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's saying that you need to be a wise steward of what God has given you. And that you need to be humble about what God has given you and what you have done. Not just with your possessions, but with what you've done with your life. And, and, and what it's really all about. Is it about God or is it about you? The real issue is your pride and your boasting in what you have done about who you are. Pride is another name for idolatry. I would say that pride is basically this, the worship of self. We don't want to admit that. We wouldn't want to say that, that, that I worship self, but that's what pride is. And if you, if you know prideful people, that's what it's about. Another definition I would use is this. That humility, conversely, is knowing who you are, knowing who God is, and not getting the two mixed up. I've shared that before, but I always go back to that. When I think about pride versus humility, knowing who I am, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Knowing who God is, that He's a sovereign God who didn't have to love me, but He loves me. And knowing that He's in control of all things, I'm not in control do you realize that? You're really not in control. God is in control. And life is going to be much better when I humble myself and I yield my life to His control and His reign in my life. So, is it about you or about God? Your allegiance, he says, must be to God and not self. Now, John summarizes his point in verse 17. Notice what he says. And the world, I've just described what it is. The world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. Now he shows you the outcome of the person who follows the world or the person who follows God. Now here's what he says. The world is passing away. You want to chase the world? Go ahead. You want to let the world satisfy the lust of your heart? Then go ahead. The world is passing away. God is not. God's not going anywhere. And God's kingdom isn't dying. It's not passing away. And, and God's, God's rule is not passing away. God's will is not passing away. The world is. So if you want to go down that path, that's where it's going to lead you. To death. But the man who does the will of God, what does he say? Remains forever. That's what's going to happen. So 
doing his will. Now, how do we do this? There's a process. Remember last Sunday, I talked about the history and process of sin. Well, there's a history and process of salvation. Now, I'm not going to get in all of the steps, but in this context of what John is saying, I want you to understand how it works, how I can live with confidence. It all begins with God. It begins with God and showing his love to you. God is God. And so I begin there. There is a God. But that God loves me and he's shown that love as the creator God. He's created me. He's created you. And he's also the redeemer God. Because of sin, he put his son on the cross to die for our sin. And in that, the big picture is, is that God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's a loving father. And he loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross. He loves his son, Jesus said. He loves me, I love him. And he loves you. So when you think about who is God, you need to think of him in terms as a loving father. And he's the perfect father. How would a perfect father relate to his child? That's who he is. Now, then, the next step is that as a loving father, we have sinned. We need to trust Jesus as our propitiation. Now, that's in verse 2 of this chapter. If you weren't here, we studied that. The word propitiation, hey, it's in the Bible. We need to know what it means. It means that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He uses this same word in chapter 4, verse 10. We're going to study it more later, more fully. But this is what he says, tying the fact that God is a loving God, he's a loving father, and that he's been the atoning sacrifice for our sin. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, uh, love consists of this. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you want to understand God's love, it's all about dealing with your sin and my sin. And that he allowed his son Christ to die on the cross for our sin. Now because of that, the next step is what? We love God. I've experienced God's love. Now I need to love him in return. Now how do we do that? John tells us by doing God's will. If I want to understand love, I need to understand what God has done. But I also need to understand what I must do. That gives me confidence. That I'm loving God in return. Now, how do we do that? Jesus said this, John 4. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Your job is to do the will of God. He said in chapter six, Matthew 6, in his prayer, Your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Yet not as I will, but as you will. I don't want this to happen, Lord. If there's any other way for this cup of suffering to pass, let it pass. But not my will, your will be done. What's going on right now in your life? Do you want it? No. None of us do. But we've got to get to the point where we say, God, I don't care if all hell comes against me. I'm going to do your will. I'm going to follow your will. Because when that happens, then you have great confidence. You have confidence in what you are doing. Notice what happens, though, when you do the will of God. 
you have eternal life. What does he say in this verse? The one who does the will of God, what? Remains forever. The one who does not do the will of God, who follows the will of the world, does not remain forever. It's implied. So, victory? Absolutely. But we still have to fight the good fight. We still have to resist the devil. Now, you don't have to live with doubt, with insecurity, with weakness or fear. You can live with confidence because of what God has done. And that all begins with your position in Christ. What does that mean? Christ is ahead of you. You don't know what to do, what step to take. He's already ahead of you. He's the shepherd. He leads. He's going before you. The Holy Spirit's out in front of you. He's with you right now. I don't care how bad it is, how alone you feel, that he's with you right now. And the fact is that he's going to see you through it. He's going to bring you to the other side because of who you are in Christ. It also means your position in Christ, that he's forgiven you of all your sins. You have no guilt. You have no shame. You are free to pursue God and to pursue his will, his life. You don't have to worry about what you've done. Unintended consequences, yes, but God's going to help you through all of that. That's in your past. You need to focus on what's ahead of you and get on with the life that God has. And Christ has won the battle. It's appropriating that victory in your life. Now notice, what God has done for you, all of it is centered in Jesus Christ. It's your position in Christ. But you can also live with confidence if you remain loyal to Him. That means you obey the Spirit rather than the flesh. You focus on what is unseen, not on what is seen. It looks terrible, and it is terrible. But you need to see beyond that. Also, you live a life of humility rather than pride. So what does all that mean? What does really living with confidence mean? It means this. Number one, you don't have to find your meaning and purpose, your value, in anyone other than Christ. If you're trying to find value and meaning from somebody else, you will have no confidence. It'll catch up with you. You know why? Because they're a sinner. They are a human being who doesn't know ultimately what is right for you, what is best for you. Only Christ knows that. And if I'm in Christ, then I don't have to depend on anybody else. They're there to help me and support me and point me to Christ. But if I'm in Christ, that's where I find my value and my meaning in life. Secondly, you don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks. You're not here on this planet to please other people. You're here to please God Almighty, to do His will and to please Him. So I don't have to worry about what other people think. I care about them, but ultimately, I've got to do what God puts in my heart to do. Third, you can do everything God wants you to do for your life. You can do it all. God, if, you have, if you're right in Christ, if you're positioned in Christ, then you can do exactly all that God wants to do in your life. Now, here's the question you need to be asking yourself. Am I doing this, this next step, handling this problem, making this decision? Am I doing this for the lust of the flesh, my flesh, for the lust of my eyes, 
or is this going to puff up my pride and my ego? Now, if the answer is yes to any of those, then you've got to stop and say, wait a minute. Because, see, if that's where you're living, that will not create confidence. The decisions that you're making, the decisions our church is making, is this the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or is it about the pride in our, in our hearts? Notice next, number four. Confidence means that you can live with true joy. Do you have joy in your heart today? Do you have joy? Are you facing problems and, and, and it's hard and it's depressive at times? Sure. But even in those situations, you can have true joy. That means God's peace, God's security, God's plan, knowing I'm going in the right direction. You can have joy. Finally, this is a big one, maybe the most important. You can enjoy God's pleasure. Just stop for a moment and ask yourself, am I constantly worried about what God thinks of me? Am I constantly worried that I'm not doing enough for him? That's the devil. You need to stop and take joy in God's pleasure of you. You are his child. Do you like everything your child does? No. But you take pleasure in your child. Right? Take pleasure in the fact that God loves you. And that you can live with confidence. Not because of who you are or what you have done. But because of who he is and what he has done. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There might be somebody here today who would say, Pastor, boy, that spoke to my heart this morning, particularly about my position in Christ. And I am not confident of my position in Jesus Christ. I don't know if I'm right with God. Well, the good news is that can be solved today. That you can settle that issue by giving your life to, to Him, believing that Christ died on the cross for your sin, Repenting of your sin, that means turning from sin and self and turning to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. I may get to follow him. Instead of you ruling your life, he rules your life. And so you're following him. Now, you may not know exactly how to do that. So when we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to come to one of our pastors and we'll help you make that commitment of your life to Christ. I suspect many in this room know the Lord and you love him dearly. But, but you're struggling with the temptations of the world. You're in a battle right now. You're, you lack confidence. You're not sure what step you need to take. And today I pray that you'll just take a moment and say, Lord, here's the place of my struggle. And Lord, I give it to you. I, I can't overcome this. But I believe you can, and I'm leaving it here today. God also may be leading some of you to become part of our church family. You need to be with God's people. You need to be connected to His family. You need a sense of belonging in our world today. 
You belong to God, but you belong to God's people. And so, if God is leading you, I pray you'll come today. There may be others that you have a burden on your heart and you just need to talk to the Lord. And you come to the altar and you talk to Him. But you might need somebody to pray for you. You let us know and we'll pray for you with that need in your life. Lord, thank you that you love me. In spite of my failures, in spite of my sin, in spite of even the desires of my heart sometimes that are not of of you, but of this world. And Lord, I pray, as you've reminded me in preparing for this message, not only do you love me, but Lord, you've empowered me to do what you've asked me to do. And you've empowered everyone here in this room and can empower them to do your will and to have confidence, your confidence in their life and experience true joy and your pleasure. Help these who need to make commitments now in Jesus' name. Amen.